Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Hey everyone, Matt here. Uh, wanted to check in uh, at the end of the year. Say thanks again for all your support. Um, things are a little crazy around here. Uh, Holly is due to give birth any day now. <laughs> so so our uh, podcast recording schedule has taken a little bit of a hit. All is good, which is great, but um, as, I'm, as I'm sure you can imagine, things are kind of hectic. Um, so this week we decided to actually share a live event that we did not long ago um, with Kay Alado McDowell, who is a previous podcast guest. Um, but we spoke together at the Hasteckkultur der Welt here in Berlin with a live stage audience um, to discuss their new book, Air Age Blueprint, out on Ignota. Um, hope you enjoy it. We have a ton lined up. Um, now would be the time to get your baby name uh, suggestions in. And uh, yeah, I hope you're uh, hope you're doing well. Catch you again soon. We were just joking; they could have chosen a bigger room. The trick with rooms like this is, if you do take pictures, you've got to crop out the empty seats. It's COVID safe, but yeah, the, the trick is you've got to get the full scale of the stage and then crop out the empty seats so it looks like there were a thousand people here to witness this and i you know and a thousand people will be witnessing this uh in the feed-based recording in fact many thousands of people will be witnessing this which i'm very grateful for um so thanks for being here i hope your week has been lovely um lovely to welcome kenrick okay okay kenrick would you mind introducing yourself for everybody here I'm sticking to traditional podcast format, and I'm terrible at introductions. Yeah, my name is Kay Alado McDowell. I am a writer and a speaker and an educator, and I co-founded a program at Google called Artists and Machine Intelligence. So I have been working for many years uh, with AI creatively and uh, with artists that use AI. And in 2020, I wrote a book called Pharmaco AI with GPT-3, we had a really wonderful conversation about it. And um, I've since written another book called A More Cringe, which came out on Deluge Books. And this, the subject of our gathering tonight is my new book with Ignota called Air Age Blueprint. Air Age Blueprint. So this is your third publication, your third kind of centaur publication, co-written. Technically the fourth because... I also, Ben Vickers and I co-edited um, The Atlas of Anomalous AI, which has some uh, AI co-writing in it as well. This is true. So would you mind giving uh, maybe a high-level overview of AirAge Blueprint? So how, in a sense, is this publication distinct from the ones you've put, released prior? Yeah, absolutely. I will start by reading this Description, a young filmmaker's life is disrupted by a fated encounter with a Peruvian healer. Called to twin paths of artistic creation and mystic truth-seeking, they journey through rainforests, cities, and cosmologies. 
in the Pacific Northwest, they meet Kay, a double agent working between art and technology, who invites them to test a secret program called shaman.ai. This human-machine experiment produces a manifesto for interspecies collaboration, a vision that remakes our technologies, identities, and deepest beliefs. With humor and criticality, Alato McDowell, along with their AI writing partner, GPT-3, weaves fiction, theory, and travelogue into an animist cybernetics, a blueprint for shaping and navigating our nascent age of air. Beautiful. <laughs> I think it, we'll, we'll talk more about the book and the particulars in the book. I finished reading the book about five hours ago, which was kind of a fun experience because I still have a lot of it racing around in my head. For those who are maybe unfamiliar, when you talk about co-writing with GPT-3, would you mind establishing what that kind of looks like, right? Like, is is GPT-3 fine-tuned on your writing? Is this... Uh, yeah, would you mind, like, digging into that a little bit? Because as, as far as I understand it, the previous Pharmaco AI was... That was a GPT-2 GPT instance, right? No, it was GPT-3. Oh, it was GPT-3, yeah. okay. okay. So the, my introduction to writing with AI came in the summer of 2020 when I got early access to GPT-3, which is Generative Pre-Trained Transformer 3. It's a language, a large language model made by OpenAI, and I was using it in an interface that was quite simple. Uh, the way it works is you put text, you type text into it, you hit a button that says generate, and the text goes to the server where the model processes it and predicts what's likely to come next. And then prints that back into the screen, and you have this back-and-forth process. Um, I was kind of dropped into it all of a sudden, and I spent two weeks writing Pharmaco AI in something of a trance, and then sent it to Ignota and... It came out very shortly after that. So this book is really the first book. Well, let me, let me back up and say that in Pharmaco AI, I used a typographic convention where my own writing was written in bold and the responses from the machine were written in a regular weight font. And I had a very strict set of rules, which was that once I committed something to the page, whether it was my own or the machine's output, once that was... I had gone through a cycle of writing and response, I didn't change it at all. I didn't edit things that were fixed. I gave myself the chance to edit the last line, the last thing that was put down, whether I wrote it or the machine wrote it. But once I, once we went through a cycle of interchange, I, I didn't change it. And so I wrote another book called A More Cringe, which completely changed the rules. I didn't keep track of who wrote what. It was a big blur. Um, I also wrote it in about three days and didn't, it's, you know, it's a, no, a novelette, it's, it's short, um, but I completely changed the rules for that. And so with Air Age Blueprint, I've gone back to the back and forth process, but I loosened up the rules a little bit and I gave myself more time to write this one. Uh, I started writing pieces of it. I started writing in the summer of 21 and, um, it went through various iterations until, you know, about a, maybe a month ago. Um, but in this one, I kept the source um, denoted by the weight of the font. So my words are in bold. The computer's words are light weight. 
Um, but I gave myself permission to change the order of things, to do some small edits on the phrasing, to collage and recompose. Um, and I felt that was necessary because the process was longer and I was making decisions and thinking about a novel, uh, a fictionalized memoir, so to speak. And um, I, I wanted more creative freedom, but I also wanted to keep this complexity that comes from having the human and the AI voice blending and going back and forth um, and knowing where those come from. Awesome. And so at the moment in the news, most people here and listening will have you know, learned a little um, of the, let's say, estranged Google engineer, Blake Lemoyne, who in conversation with Google's large language model, Lambda, came to a conclusion that uh, he was interfacing with some kind of a sentience. Um, I infer from this book and the very kind of diaristic uh, process of this book that is not the impression that you were under. But I think it's kind of worth digging into that a little bit, right? Like, um, in the sense that, okay, on the one hand, you have characters like this Lemoyne who's willing to take like a very extreme conclusion as to what is going on there with this intelligence or cognition, cognitive system. Um, when you're approaching this, uh, uh, how, how do you see it? And, and the reason I ask is that this book seems far more kind of autobiographical, autofictional, um, than prior ones. I inferred from reading it, knowing knowing you uh, even just a little bit, that there's a lot of kind of truth uh, buried in there. And so I'm, I'm curious about the relationship between you and, and, and the prompting system. Well, the, the question of sentience is a really thorny one. Um, I think there are some simple tools we can use to try to think through it. Um, one really simple logical tool is to not try to force the answer to be binary, right? So we don't have to say it is a language model is or isn't sentient. We can think in degrees. Um, and another tool we can use to think about it is our emotional intelligence. I think a lot of what's happening in the situation, it makes me very sad uh, because I think that there's something that somebody is looking for in a technical system that just isn't being provided by life or by social system, which is connection, um, which is, I mean, sentience. People are very lonely after lockdown. Um, but then I think we can also think about it in terms of um, language. Um, does a system having language mean that it's sentient? Well, no, but it looks that way to us because that's in many ways what we think of as sentience is the ability to have language, whether it's externally expressed or internally in our own minds. And it is... The case in my experience with the non-linguistic experiences, I actually wrote about this for a Hollows annual that Nora Kahn and Pelly Greitzer edited recently. Um, I wrote about non-linguistic experiences. And um, so often those kind of experiences are come from meditation practices, they come from psychedelic experiences, and they're often correlated with a loss of identity. So we have a strong sense that language is our identity. But um, if we do train in meditation or we undergo some kind of experience that takes language away from us, um, we can find other forms of identity. So it's 
it's interesting to start to decompose your subjectivity in that way and realize that maybe my language isn't my identity. Maybe my language isn't my sentience. Um, but maybe language is also a form of sentience. Maybe language is a virus from outer space, you know, and maybe it persists beyond any individual or lifetime or culture. Um, and so there's, I think we are being forced to reconcile with a really, um, profound kind of alienation, but also a profound deconstruction of the elements of our own consciousness, subjectivity, sentience, that can be quite productive. But the danger that I see is that that conversation is happening inside of a very materialistic, rational frame that has uh, given up a lot of the tools that one needs to negotiate the gnosis of lacking a self. Uh, you know, Buddhists train in compassion, they train in meditation and are prepared to realize that their self is empty. Whereas if you are kind of stumbling through your day, doom scrolling and suddenly someone says, oh, by the way, you don't exist. And here's, you know, quote unquote, scientific proof. Uh, this is a very jarring experience. Um, so I think this is, these are some of the things that have been on my mind as I've seen this conversation play out around that specific uh, occurrence. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, the, um, that kind of gets to what struck me about this book that was different from previous works in that you brought up the example there of, you know, you use the word entheogenic a lot in the book or this idea of kind of discovering oneself or, or meditation prayer actually comes up mm -hmm. a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. And it made me think a little bit about the practice of, of actually kind of generating this work, right? That in a sense, there's something uh, biographical to it. You're clearly entering uh, information about yourself, vulnerable information about yourself in some cases um, that I inferred comes from real lived experience. Um, so I have two questions really. Like one, you know, what what is that process like? And, and are you looking to learn something more about yourself through undergoing that process? And number two, I think there's this kind of interesting question, which is, you know, if this is really, if these tools may be useful as a, a, a medium of kind of contemplation, what is the kind of motivation to release the product of them, mm. right? Because we, when we spoke before, we talked a little bit about kind of, you know, the therapeutic components of mm -hmm. some of these systems where, you know, in our experience, at least with music, there's something very therapeutic to the idea of jamming or like the idea of like producing something in the moment and the product of that not necessarily being, you know, the point, right? Mm -hmm. The point is more something a bit more meditative or, or contemplative. And so there is that question where, you know, in, in the book you talk about like corruptions a lot or mm -hmm. where, where it almost feels to me like, you know, once the product is released, that product is there to be scrutinized um, as something beyond a meditative, contemplative thing. I wonder if there's something there, but that, that came to mind. Well, I think there's one, there's a literary element to what you're describing, which is, um, you know, what is the literary value of an experimental text made in a, in, in a way like this? And, um, or what is the literary value of a meditation? Um, and I think this is a really important question because art is not meditation, although, and ritual is not necessarily art, but they connect in certain ways. So, um, really focusing on how to make this, how to make something a work of art that is also a process of discovery. I mean, writers will tell you, you, you write to learn a lot of the time. And that's what I was doing with this book. I have been working on, um, 
a neuroscience-based opera and simultaneously was planning a conference on interspecies technology. And um, one of the early chapters in the book tries to unravel some of these relationships between neuroscience, ecology, uh, AI, and psychedelics um, under the motivation of entheogenesis or generating the divine within. So can these let's call them existential technologies that reflect aspects of sentience or consciousness or that break our identities open into relations. Can those be guided? What, what are they being guided toward? Can they be guided toward the revelation or genesis of the divine within? So, um, that was the question for me to answer. Um, but a lot of that was done through essays that appear in the book. Um, and, Ultimately, those, I think, needed a lot of context setting to be interesting and readable. And so that's why there's a novel woven into it. Um, and the, so there are processual elements of writing and discovery that really happen through the analytical essay part. And then there's, there are these other parts that are about making those accessible and humanistic. And then they also had their own forms of discovery and like self-awareness that were folded into it. But as we were talking before, you said something really interesting about the relationship between, um, auto, auto fiction or autobiography, uh, memoir and the generated parts and the fictional parts. So that might be an interesting thing to talk about. No, I agree. Well, that was my, that was my impression. Cause there was a point somewhere halfway through without, uh, breaking, like bring introducing spoilers. There was a point somewhere halfway through where I realized that, that a fictional novel was taking place because the, you know, so much of it was biographical and, and comported with biographical information I kind of knew about you and incredibly plausible. And then there's some point in, 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 the, in, in the middle where there was a break there. And I was like, okay, but this is actually really interesting. One, because you're kind of exposing the tools here a little bit, right? But number two, that it must be such an interesting exercise to be feeding these kind of diaristic or, or biographical elements back and plugging holes in memory. That, that was the one aspect there where I was like, huh, if I think about it, you know, there's so many moments uh, when I was younger that when I look back upon, now I have this kind of cinematic recollection or this like far more interesting recollection of what was probably a very mundane experience. But that over time, actually, you know, a bunch of elements combined together to kind of paint a more like rosy picture of something or a more dramatic picture of something. And I'm like, that's kind of what the system is doing there for you. And of course the information uh, contained within this book is personal to you. So I'm very curious what that's like, not having done it, um, you know, what it's like to have, you know, holes in your memory. You talk, for example, about presenting a film in New York when you were, when you were a student and not really recalling much about that particular event. And I, and I believe that, you know, GPT-3 at that point kind of plugs certain memories or like, or, 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 or fills out a picture for you. And I wonder at what point, you know, at what point that kind of synthesis of memory starts to become concrete. <laughs> right. This gets into a little bit of the notion of um, uh, contamination. Yes. Right. Like generativity, um, well, writing writing memoir and then generating components of it, whether you're generating it from your own present consciousness or with the machine, um, you you do run the risk of overwriting your own memory or you know corrupting your own memory. Um, there are other sections beside the one that you mentioned um, where that does happen. And one thing I, <laughs> I really need to examine my relationship with this, but um, 
the plausible deniability of writing with AI is a really interesting yeah. aspect of it. Um, and so there were cer- there were certain sections that have to do with psychedelic experiences that I didn't want to divulge my own experiences. Um, so I t- had the AI write them for me, and um, people that are familiar with like the pers- specific context that were presented would probably be aware that um, that was that's those are things that were unlikely to happen. Those are you know those maybe not be the type of experiences that would one would have but the ai kind of predicted that that would you know so there's a gap there are these there are numerous gaps in that way um and i think reading at least these books that are written um there's a lot of friction that comes from those gaps and there's a lot of work put on the reader to to navigate those and i you know people have told me really wild things about reading Pharmaco AI that um, the words were changing on the page while they read it or like space got bigger around them while they read it. And so I think there's something that happens when you're kind of forced to work in this way. I don't want to, to, to sell it like it's this really arduous thing. It's, it's really fun work, trust me. Um, but I think uh, there, there is definitely something going on there. I will say to the larger question of writing memoir, um, I was not, you know, there are things that feel really, um, real that are uh, completely made up. Um, and there, a lot of it is based on my own life, but which parts are which, I mean, this is the, this is the nice thing about auto fiction is you don't have, you can dramatize. Um, I actually never showed a film in New York. Oh, really? Damn. (laughs) But there's another, there were a couple of moments where I was like, oh, you got me. I'm like, yeah, this is, yeah. There's another instance that, um, somebody thought was fictional. It was the name, it was uh, about, um, a musical that one of my employers. Uh, I did actually search for that musical. You're not called, the only. Like, you're not the only one. It was called Online Dot the Musical or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that musical actually existed, even though you can't find it. So it's it's really, you know, it's there's no there's no real easy way to know what's real and what's not in this text. That's actually really nice though, because that's the one thing I appreciate about this. I mean, particularly in the context of the Lemoyne story, is I don't feel like you're trying to sell. Uh, like oversell these technologies more so kind of explore them for what they're good for actually which is kind of opening up this space of it's a it's kind of a space of possibility it's a space of kind of confusion mm-hmm. um it's a space of like exploration mm-hmm. uh i appreciate and and i kind of agree there it's like i don't believe that these systems need to be considered sentient uh in order to be justified right mm-hmm. uh, the, in actuality this is a different mode of creating something mm-hmm. and it can be a very rewarding uh, uh mode of creating something i wonder though so uh, two things like it, at, toward the end of the book um just to qualify what you said before, there's there's a beautiful passage where you where you encounter a woman uh, who encourages you to release a work of fiction um, uh, uh, for for someone who is going through something that you were going through hypothetically or allegedly uh, mm-hmm. uh, at this period of time. There's also a number of uh, of there's a strong emphasis toward the, the latter half of the book that feels almost kind of prescriptive, mm-hmm. right? Where you start talking about, for example, quite tangible histories that I believe were most likely true. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically, there's a, there's a large emphasis on kind of shamanism. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, I personally don't have much of a history. Uh, I don't know that much about this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I wonder, you know, in your mind, would you mind qualifying kind of what a shaman is, particularly mm-hmm. situated in the context that you're kind of invoking mm-hmm. the term, mm-hmm. um, and maybe how it applies to some of these some of these uh, uh, technologies? Because it feels like, you know, whereas you have maybe the Lemoyne and the most extreme interpretations of these things as being absolutely sentient, it feels like actually somewhere in the middle... Um, acknowledging that these are other intelligences that are very useful and are absolutely real, irrespective of their alleged sentience or not. Mm-hmm. There's something in that and the conversion of kind of, uh, uh, of, of, how would you put it, like findings or revelations from these systems that, that feels very relevant mm-hmm. in, the, in that framing of the shaman. And, and so, yeah, please. Yeah, I, one of the big themes, I mean, as the book is as much about psychedelics and the current their current state in like the United States for example um, as it is about AI and so in order to talk about that well there are certain things I wanted to really explore about um, what is their status what does it mean for legalization to be occurring for medicalization to be occurring commercialization um, and what does it mean in the context of given traditions, including shamanism, and in particular South American shamanism, which is in no way a cohesive singular thing. Um, But I did draw on Eduardo Viveros de Castro's um, cannibal metaphysics for some of the fundamental definitions that I used. And so I was was really trying to be precise about that. Um, There's a lot of writing that isn't precise about shamanism and projects a lot. And so um, I was using some some core uh, definitions from that um, and the different methods of shamanism. But the core definition is that a shaman is in the Amerindian cosmos, a shapeshifter who is granted access to the world that precedes extension, wherein all species are able to transform into each other. And this is kind of described as a, an existing place. Um, and so this very famous shape-shifting role of the shaman, uh, the shaman is seen also as, I think this is a quote, I, I'm hoping I'm getting this right, but it's from Viveros de Castro, uh, is a, cosmo- a cosmological, let's see, a, a cosmological dip- diplomat, um, or a diplomat within a sort of cosmic space. And so somebody who's mediating between these worlds. And so in investigating possibilities for AI in an interspecies context, this is a really helpful figure to think with. Um, The idea of a shapeshifter who is able to translate for animals to become a different animal. Um, And so in rather than thinking uh, interspecies technology as a product or as um, a, I don't know, a policy, say, what would it mean to think of it as a shaman um, and use that figure that already has a relationship, an inter- deeply interspecies relationship, through another cosmology, and this is a big theme in the book, is what role do cosmologies play in framing our assumptions and what we imagine is possible with technology? Um, and the sections at the end that you're talking about um, work through some of Anna Singh's ideas to talk about... Um, contamination uh, between belief systems and between cosmologies and to treat cosmologies as um, entities within ecosystemic relationships with each other. So going into Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina's encounter um, and, and the current efforts to medicalize and commercialize psilocybin, there are multiple 
cosmologies and belief systems that are interacting in this and they're kind of below the surface. And so, um, you know, there's not a one-to-one relationship between say AI and psychedelics, although pharmaco AI is very much about AI as a psychedelic, um, AI as a poison and what that this notion of poisons really does get to the idea of contamination and what is the right dose of a poison. And so the, the, the protagonist at certain points in the book is wondering if they themselves have been contaminated by their engagement with AI and if they will ever be able to think the same way again. Um, so as a generation that's living through the emergence of this technology where we are kind of privileged to have been in the pre-AI world. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, on that on that topic, you know, it, the crude. I remember when the the Lemoyne claims came out. I hate to bring him up so much, but it's useful. <laughs> when the Lemoyne claims <clears throat> claims came out, I was like, you know, the, the the terrifying thing about this to me, in a sense, is that you know, religions, for example, have started on weaker claims, right? That you you interact with something that reveals that reveals an inner truth to you that needs to be defended. I'm like in in the realm of in the scope of kind of the, the gradient of, of bullshit, like this, this is actually quite a dangerous idea. And I wonder, you know, oftentimes that is kind of like a, a cliche way that people would approach the topic of like an inhuman intelligence or something like this. What I find quite interesting um, about the shaman idea and I'm kind of curious about is, you know, how, what kind of role does a shaman play within the kind of societies that you have looked at? Because in my mind, it, it comes across as like a discrete uh, proposal to, let's say, a religion, or, or it, it feels like some kind of a, a medium, or, or there's 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 something more fluid and actually practical uh, to the proposal than simply a matter of like sheer belief or like doctrine. Um, and I'm really curious about that because in making the the analogy with some of these larger systems and and, and shamanism, um, I think it, it it it'll be quite interesting to learn how people you know traditionally uh, interact with the shaman. <laughs> Well, there's a fundamental distinction that um, Eduardo Viveros de Castro draws on in, in Hannibal Metaphysics, which is vertical versus horizontal shamanism. So in um, there are generally two patterns. One is a, what could be called horizontal shamanism, where there's a circle uh, associus that's protected, and it implies um, predation and war and um, protection of associus. And horizontal shamanism is more transcendent, more about, um, it appears in more Pacific hierarchical cultures, um, and it may be more like a priest in some sense. So some of the questions that I ask about that are to do with the interspecies, uh, you know, with this proposal of uh, a shape-shifting um, representative or diplomat to non-humans, could AI, would it, what, would it work horizontally, in which case, what is the socius, or would it work vertically? And I think this is maybe where some of these religious ideas about AI come in. Um, and throughout the entire book, the protagonist and the author are very um, ambivalent about all of these ideas because it's playing in very dangerous territory. But I think it's important to map it out and to to state it and to imagine it. Um, first of all, because it stretches the, the imaginary of what's possible. But um, second of all, the fact that there's a possible benefit as much as there is a possible harm, it works in the same kind of principle of poisons, right? So um, articulating it so we can have a more thorough conversation about it, I think is is pretty important. But I, I was tried to be very clear 
through the story and through my my own um, through the way the ideas are framed that um, these may all be really terrible ideas. I mean, the, the the horizontal over vertical. I think it's a cool distinction and and definitely sounds preferable. Um, I wanted to try and establish. You've mentioned a few times interspecies communication that appears quite often in the book and is also, as far as I understand, another reason for you being here. Um, it would be cool to kind of understand a little bit what's going on with this conference on that particular topic. Um, it's also where some of this thought, I think, you know, there's this very exploratory component to the book um, and then some of it starts becoming really, really tangible. There are certain proposals uh, toward the end of the book that will be worth uh, getting into, specifically around this idea of interspecial commu- communication. Would you mind qualifying like what that is from your perspective first, just so we can talk about it? Yeah, the context for it, um, well, right here, right now, is um, I've been one of a few people that's organizing a conference around interspecies futures, interspecies technology, um, what can AI sensing, robotics, biology, uh, chemistry, what what can be done to represent non-humans and to preserve their life worlds? Um, so I think we'll probably be under a press embargo and, but at the time that this comes out, so I won't say the names of the institutions, but they're um, institutions here in Berlin, and we've invited a small group of people to to come and share their knowledge with each other and to help kind of brainstorm ways that we can make this happen. Um, the context for that in terms of AI is, you know, there have been several you know projects in the recent years to take create data sets around different types of animals or plants. Um, so cetaceans, whales, dolphins, their songs, there are lots of recordings of them. They have some understanding of when and where the recordings were made and what was happening with the pods. And um, they're mapping those out using machine learning to create these spatialized representations of, of these similar songs, cluster them, and try to understand what's going on with, with that. So... Um, I did a piece for the Journal of Interdisciplinary Voice Studies about this kind of idea of the voice of the earth or the voice of non-humans being representable with machine learning. Um, But of course, there are other ways, other modes of communication between non-humans like phytochemical sensing uh, or phytochemical, well, by plants, but also by by systems that can then be mapped. So there's a sort of push within a certain part of the tech world to do this kind of mapping and understanding to turn the gaze of sensing and computation on nature so that we can represent it. Um, but, you know, this is again one of these double edged uh, approaches where, as much as we might see more or learn more, we can also potentially open the gates of the market. Um, or, you know, predatory capitalism um, onto these. Not that that isn't already happening, but there's a... So it's quite a complex uh, space that has a lot of ideological tension built into it, and that's what we're hoping to understand better through this conference. Yeah, I think it it sounds really cool. I mean, it it brings to mind, I'm I'm sure you're familiar, or many here are familiar with the Terra Zero project Mm -hmm. that, that was attempting through, you know, Placing sensors to basically try and you know determine um, what a forest wants, mm-hmm. right? Um, and of course, there's many layers of interpretation that can be in there. But but I welcome it. I find it like quite it's quite a positive middle ground to take to say no, we can actually benefit from attempting to to construct a a voice or at least a variety of interpretations over what um, you know a group of a group of of, of 
beings or, or mm-hmm. you know, uh, a, a group of what would you what would you describe them as? Like uh, entities, let's non, say non humans, non humans, exactly. Uh, what what they might what they might like, but of course, yeah, it's it's you know, you're 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 also building a new kind of axis of axis of. Um, uh, of, of commerce on top of that, but that's an unavoidable. It feels to me like an unavoidable uh, eventuality. Like, well, that's I mean, that's a good question. Is it unavoidable? Um, but another question, I think, what's an interesting a word that you used was interpretation, and I think that's a really important word. Um, and you know, you can you can dig into hermeneutics and you know f- forms of interpretation to try to understand our positionality within that interpretation, um, which has very interest. You know. To unpack that a little bit, you know, the, to interpret a, a text, you need to understand your assumptions going into it, the assumptions of the place where it was, time it was created, how those interact with each other, and the same thing is true in terms of positionality and ref, and points of view and reference within machine learning models. You know, like every everything looks different from a different perspective. So, um, I think. You know, I was at the Venice Biennale, and there was a lot about interspecies stuff there. And I think it's really beautiful that that idea is becoming more prominent, because I think people really just feel that idea. They really feel a desire for that. And so, the question of how to do it is a really tricky one. And I think this is something to to begin working on, um, and to start understanding. In order to do that, we have to understand where we're interpreting. And what our motivations are, and so it gets into it's an almost um, planetary or, or cosmic uh, level or example of bias, you know. Um, and so it's all it's all um, it's all in there. Yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, it's funny. We had um, Anil Mavakavia on recently, who just wrote a great book specifically on like computational reason. It's like a very dense but like really beautiful um, uh, a book, and we were talking specifically about this idea of allowing agents the freedom to explore, mm-hmm. right? So allowing uh, autonomous agents the freedom to explore um, and and report back to us discoveries or interpretations mm-hmm. of, of of what it is that those systems find. And of course, you can imagine a scenario in which the the only the only proper way to deal with any of this is to have multi, multiple different levels of interpretation uh, uh, taking place, multiple different vantage points from which to try and uh, decipher what you know the forest voice or this mm-hmm. group of voles mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, voices is attempting to tell us. Um, and if anything, if anything that can be derived from that, it, it feels like um, you know it, it's useful to think through these things. One to just get into the habit of understanding that some kind of an autonomous system can produce different perspectives that that aren't final, mm-hmm. you know, that, that are not to be taken at face value per se, mm-hmm. but like are to be read and interpreted. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because that, that seems like a very, uh, that seems like a very pressing real, uh, uh, real scenario that we haven't quite developed skills for. We're not used to, we're not used to kind of, uh, uh, listening, listening to, uh, uh, systems that produce, that produce insights that, that may have like a great consequence for us or for, for others. Um, but, but not to treat them as an authority per se, but mm-hmm. just simply treat them as kind of qualified data. That's come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're in these feedback loops all the time. Um, and that's, 
this is where so much suspicion comes in for me in thinking through this as a theoretical space is, you know, what, what are we projecting into it as we try to understand and model, but how does it, how does it push back? And it's really a triangle, you know, it's, it's ourselves, it's the, the mapping and the understanding, and then it's the actual entities and it is introducing mediation. Um, so I, this stuff gets very heady. It gets very complex. And the desire that people have is just to feel connected to, uh, the non-human world. So, um, like I said, I'm very ambivalent about it, but I feel it needs to be played out and I find myself kind of posted at this intersection, whether I like it or not. So totally. Well, this is a great segue because the term cybernetic animism appears throughout the book. Would you mind talking a little bit about cybernetic animism? Cause I feel like that's exactly where we're at in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. And I have to usually read my own books like seven or eight times before I actually understand what's in them. Um, but in this case, cybernetic animism, so forgive me if I, if I, it takes me a little while, but, um, in this case, cybernetic animism is something that's kind of proposed as a worldview in, in one of the essays in the, in the book. And it, it tries to, um, well, it's, it's a practice also. So as a worldview, it's, it's essentially equating, um, it's allowing animism to inform our relationship with nature, but also the design of technologies. Um, and then it's proposing a set of practices uh, to enact that. And so part of what it's, <laughs> part of uh Part of that proposal is, or that practice is um, using neuroscience, ecology, AI, and psychedelics at the same time or training for the high dimensionality of these complex spaces using psychedelics, using psychedelics to train the mind to be able to navigate complex spaces. Um, and so it's, it's proposing collaboration between shamans and neuroscientists and which essentially is happening to a certain extent through psychedelics research, but plugging those conversations into um, AI and ecology. And one of the things that comes up, I believe it's in that chapter, if not it's related, is this idea of an image of nature without translation. Mm -hmm. So can can machines have that? Can we have that? Um, And as with a lot of this, I, I feel very ambivalent. There's a kind of forking where it's like, well, we can go really far in a technical direction to try to produce something that we actually can get kind of just by sitting in a forest. Um, but that's one of a number of concepts that are that were generated by the AI. Botano, psycho, pharmaco, cosmonosis. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you said that because I also have that in my notes. <laughs> can I say that one more time? <laughs> Botano, psycho, pharmaco, cosmonosis uh, is another one. I'm trying to think of some of the others. Um, there's, there's a few neologisms in it. The, I think people will find that the essays are pretty dense and compressed, um, and some of them even get into kind of uh, CCRU crazy land. Um, but, uh, but this is why there's this, this narrative kind of woven throughout it, and the, those essays have a specific position in, in the book as, as almost like a fictional text. Awesome. Okay, so... Trying to, I'm going to try and like steer this into like a, a more mundane direction mm-hmm. there. But I feel like so stepping back outside of the subject matter of the book, um, in terms of your work now, your very prolific work with this particular media, where do you see this stuff going? I like what tools. 
I mean, the book does kind of infer a little bit, like uh, some tools that may be needed. I can't tell whether these uh, these prescriptions are coming from you necessarily mm-hmm. or from this fictional kind of uh, interstitial character. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about prayer and contemplation mm-hmm. and meditation. Um, you know, what tools, where do you see uh, this kind of centaur approach toward creating things going? Um, and what tools are we maybe deficient in to navigate that properly one of the things that happens with new technologies whether it's a microscope or ai is you get new ways of seeing right and and the technologies will kind of assert their way of seeing on what they show you so the botanopsychopharmacocosmonostic prayer chapter is kind of about what what does it mean to contemplate, meditate, or pray with the image of nature that technologies produce for us? So it kind of gets into the idea of seeing, you know, one of the suggestions is to see your own neurons as a living being. And, you know, it's getting into this microscopic vision. It's getting into relational ecological vision, things that can be made visible by AI or sensing. Um, and, and so this is where I'm hopeful about it, is that it can make things visible, but if we... And in that visibility, um, really only see the image of commerce or the image of technology rather than seeing the image of nature, the image of relationality, the image of the divine, that, that actually those things can be seen just as easily through these technologies, but we don't have the practices in place to meditate on uh, uh, electron microscopy. You know, What does it mean to really sit with that image of what's going on inside oneself? And this is where subjectivity starts to get challenged um, and sentience or I mean the gut biome right like um, the networked nature of our own inner life but also our external life and how that folds back into our inner life all these things when you start to examine them really do challenge these binaristic ideas of sentience and subjectivity and self and other so I part of what are being proposed in cybernetic animism or botanopsychopharmacocosmonostic prayer is the idea of building cultural practice that enfolds what we learn through technology. And if, if AI can reveal more, how does, how does that help us see the world more clearly? And how does that help us actually reorient toward uh, the divine or toward the emptiness of our own subjectivity, you know? So rather than being in a kind of nihilistic deadlock with, Oh my God, the AI has language. That means I'm, a zombie um what if what if it True. shows us that yeah yeah i mean that's cool you could do that but uh you might want to also consider the option of uh, seeing the the uh, sentience of language itself or the emergence of your own consciousness as part of this ongoing process of cosmic creation and yeah it sounds a bit new agey if you put it like uh, kind of uh, curtly like that but actually um uh, there's a lot there. So, um, this is the end of the book is really getting into this, like, how, how do we do that? Um, and how, and, um, how do we save our sense of futurity and our sense of subjectivity, um, from the technologies that we're creating that are going to transform it and change it. And it might feel like we're dying, uh, you know. Yeah, no, it's it's something we think about a lot. I mean, we, we were talking earlier about Dali or, or Imogen or whatnot, and it's it's something that's funny because obviously these topics, if you've been in the field for a little bit, you kind of have this like slow 
casual stroll where things get more and more real. And then someone sent me like a Joe Rogan clip earlier where he was being exposed to Dali generations for the first time. I'm like, whoa, like actually the, the complexity shower, like the deluge that's happening at that point in time where you go from, oh, art's something that people do to, whoa, what? You know, like with no gradient there, um, feels quite abrupt. And it does feel a little bit like, you know, those kind of benchmark breakthrough things are going to be dropping year by year. We were discussing outside, talking about kind of culture war stuff, of course, in the context of the of the Hakeve, which you know has this very interesting history situated in the Cold War that we went into with the previous in the previous episode. Um you know, it feels very much at the moment right now that between, you know, Alphabet, OpenAI, Meta, um, let's say there's probably some Chinese companies that are, that are getting in on the act, that there is a bit of an arms race but most specifically around kind of subjectivity, right? That we went from this period of time where people were familiar with Kasparov playing the machine. Um, you know, up until a few years ago, that was kind of like the play space for, for machine learning. Um, AlphaGo, I think, probably like put a, put a pin or like mm-hmm. close that chapter. And now the next chapter is this kind of race for, you know, creating subjective systems. We discussed, I mean, Lambda, of course, with Lemoyne, but you, you discussed that you'd, you'd been playing around a little bit, um, maybe this is a spoiler, but playing around a little bit with Lambda uh, and its capacity for humor, for example, and things like this. Um, and it's like, yeah, like this realm of all of a sudden it being bridged from these kind of cute games that you can sequester and quarantine over here, all of a sudden, uh, you know, entering into the space of, you know, being able to express yourself for all intents and purposes as convincingly as a human um, in, in most realms feels like a, a, a big issue to take care of. And, and so I appreciate the thought that's given to quite how we might structure that. And I wonder, are you on the same timeline to me? Because I see this as, you know, we needed these ideas like, five years ago if that makes sense mm-hmm. well, i guess with the timeline mm, it's hard to say it feels it feels very non-linear it feels like things happen really quickly um the examples of imogen and dolly i mean even for me i'm highly attuned to the space and after playing with i had some very strange experiences playing with mid-journey um I was like scrolling through like the thousand images I had made one day and my brain just started exploding. Um, it was actually very anxiety producing. Um, so, but these things are hitting on a, on a subconscious level a lot of the time. And maybe it's the complexity of the patterns. Um, but I thought one thing that you said was really interesting about an arms race. And this speaks to maybe the way that the language that we use, like really brings our assumptions in as causal factors, you know, is it a subjectivity race? Is it a humor race? Is it a wisdom race? Is it a love race? Um, I took, there's one chapter in the book that actually takes a very famous text, an accelerationist text, and flips all the f- words in the first paragraph around to sort of, instead of it being about the collapse of civilization, it's about the ascension of wisdom um, and the idea of like these feedback loops can be used to produce hell but they can also be used to produce wisdom so um, i think that this we do need more language so i I agree we needed the ideas and we needed we need better language now and it's not going to come from like iterating the chat bot you know totally well that's the thing and it and it and it falls on these two poles where it's like death or worship Mm-hmm. It's like that's how it's always interpreted. It's like this means the end of me, obsolescence, right? Or 
this thing's great. I've got to like come up with some device to be able to worship it because like I want to be on this thing's team. And you're like, okay, both of those seem kind of preposterous, but that is the response. Um, yeah, and specifically on the mid journey, I mean, I, we definitely had that. Like Holly and I've been so deep in these systems for like a year or something, and there's a point whereby everything looks like a prompt. And I was reading about this, and I forget the the term. Uh, there's a term basically for people who. Um, apparently it's quite common with engineers, which is not to, uh, not to stigmatize, but where people don't have mental pictures in their head, mm. it's called, thank you. Thank you. Aphantasia. Aphantasia. Exactly. Where people don't have mental pictures in their head. So when they see something, uh, and they're asked to recall it afterwards, they, it's almost like a labeling mm-hmm. system. And I'm like, it's funny. I'm, I'm almost being trained to like, it's like a reverse system where like, I do have a picture in my head. But now I'm trying to find labels for everything in order to be able to, to disrupt it and change it. And I'm like, what is that word? Um, yeah. This is that thing about contamination because it's so, cause again, language being so close to thought and then your language being influenced where, where you're like, how do I describe that to really get like the, the, the like eight shadows falling off? And as a writer, it's really, yeah, exactly. Octane render, 4K. Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, as a writer, it's a really interesting exercise, but it's also giving over a lot of influence. And so, yeah, I think this this is this is where the paranoia sets in. Yeah, no, it 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 yeah. At some point, it got, and it's only going to get realer. I mean, that's but, the other. But you were saying about this idea of um, extreme, this polarization of like worshiping something or being afraid of it. It's it's purely binaristic thinking and it's it's overly simplistic and we have to move beyond it and it's really encouraging that identity can be formulated in non-binary ways um so yeah and like more of that please um but of course the way i mean the the whole discursive system is so polarized right now anyway um but i think this is where neologism and creativity and, and artists are really called for um to create the frames that we use and it's really surprising as soon as an idea kind of is available as a handle if it can be put into the right um story if it can be put into the right image if it can circulate um then suddenly it becomes available as a a tool for thought which is really scary because you start to realize like how many things we haven't thought of or labeled or put a name to or made pithy and sticky um so you know not to this is the thing I always do, but we really need artists to, to do that work and to, to it, there is a, um, really valuable utilitarian and kind of existential, um, reason to do that. Yeah. And, and Kay at the NSA in your book agrees, um, with the, <laughs> sorry, that is maybe a very esoteric reference, but, um, no, I, I agree, but yeah, yeah, it's all, and that's one thing I appreciate about the book. I mean, not to go too much into into some of the the prescriptions toward the end, um, but that's what's refreshing and why I find some kind of a kinship in in reading what you do is presenting this kind of other option, mm-hmm. you know, where it's not. I mean, even the idea now thinking about you know uh, uh, the climate challenge or whatnot, the the idea of that somehow being connected to. Uh, machine learning systems as a tool, um, as something like uh, as some as uh, machine learning systems in themselves being like an empathetic uh, mm-hmm. uh, tool is you know is a a non-standard thing to hear that I absolutely agree with. Right, like the the challenge to all of the the kind of flattened binary ways of thinking is also like a deeply felt um, challenge to subjectivity. To and that's where 
yeah, that's like the things, the things that we're missing, the things we have that we haven't thought are actually often seen as a threat rather than an opportunity. Um, and that's another, I mean, in terms of like the emotional care for people in the Anthropocene in the age of AI is actually to help the Blake Lemoines um, feel better and understand like what's going on. In a, I mean, I don't want to be condescending to him, but... Um, I think he's an agent of chaos. I think he knows exactly what oh, he's doing. He's a Discordian priest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, don't, I think I think he knows exactly what he's doing. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, he's he's in a way pure poetry in his fedora, <laughs> with his vest and his red shirt. <laughs> Better going somewhere with that. Well, <laughs> You're talking about subjectivity. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, it's. I think it's. It is. It's just like, it's scary and like we're boiling frogs and we're not scared until suddenly we're like, oh, maybe, maybe it's a little scary, but the Joe Rogans and everybody else that just gets it all at once, it's, it's really scary and it challenges like deeply held beliefs. It challenges deeply held identity and the process of just letting your identity be destroyed um, or like confronting something that has the power to do that is quite psychedelic um and there's i think a need you know a cultural need to facilitate that experience for people um in you know the psychedelic experience sure but like this psychedelic aspect of the ai experience or of the climate change experience um like this is by the like ideas of death and rebirth kind of come up at the end of the book too because um you know, to be empathetic to people that are trying to navigate this. Um, it, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, it is. But, but as you said, it's, it's I, I would even say like, it, it's the death of an identity, right? And, and there's a big kind of vacuum there that is waiting to be occupied of neologisms and, you know, just interesting ways to pursue a future in which um, this exists, which it absolutely will, and we thrive in in combination with it, which I absolutely hope will happen, mm-hmm. right? But but not enough of that seems to seems to seems to happen. I mean, just generally, the, um, you know, it's one of the reasons for the podcast is trying to like figure out, like find as many people as possible who are kind of on board with that thesis um, and then surface them. Uh, but but yeah, that that seems to be the challenge, and I appreciate your work for it. You said something earlier about not using AI for the right things. People aren't using it for the right things. And I think that's, you're speaking to that point again, like we haven't figured out what it's for yet. And it needs to be used in ways that don't reproduce the same assumptions that we've had about other technologies in order to get to that point. And I personally think it's for things that are way weirder than we're thinking about. And that's exciting to me. Totally. So just to to close before we have questions, um, in terms of this interspecies communication, is there anything that people can follow to learn more about that? Because that's a really juicy topic. Um, you're putting on this conference. I assume there may be something published from that. Um, how would people, and particularly people in in proximity, <laughs> now, how might you interact with that? Um, we will be releasing a podcast. Um, like I said, we won't be releasing anything until sep- later September, probably. Um, but maybe we can figure out the timing and and share or just share through your channels anyway when it is available. But there's going to be a like about eight episode podcast that will encapsulate a lot of the work that we've done. Hell yeah. And uh, the books are available. The books will be available through Ignota as will the very sick t-shirt. I was about to say, can I have a t-shirt? The art, artwork I mean, is like you might need to talk to Sarah about that. <laughs> um, we, yeah, this artwork by Somnath Bhatt is... Um, 
really incredible and it's featured on the on the t-shirt what's going on with the artwork just so i understand it's kind of hard to tell in this projection but yeah. if you look up close there are these it uh, for the people that are listening we'll try to do a little bit of a, a text to image for you um <laughs> there's a, a pinkish circle made of snakes beneath which is a sort of wreath of or some vines with faces coming out and a human figure with a bird on their finger and inside the circle are various colored um, pixelated animals and plants and clouds and in the middle of the circle there are a couple of eyes staring back at you so you just generated the episode artwork thank you so much (laughs) i don't think it's gonna look the same (laughs) well thank you for your time um we're gonna have some questions from people here and uh, yeah, congratulations on, Thank on this so book. Thank you so much, Matt. I really enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. I'm guessing, so if anyone does have any questions for Kemrick, um, we can, it's intimate enough that we can probably hear you. Hello. Thank you very much for that. Um, I kept on thinking about the uh, neurological case study of Phineas Gage, who was a railway worker and had a tamping rod that went through his head uh, and brain but he survived and the sort of the wondrous factor of that story and the shock horror realization from other people on the outside saying that he was never the same person again but given that he wouldn't have known that um (laughs) and your real time living through a kind of transformational metamorphosis i just wonder if you could talk about your personal feelings about pre present and post AI life? Do we know that we're living in an AI world? Would I, would I know if I had been contaminated by AI? Oh, that is a really good question. Would I know if I had been contaminated by spirituality? What if I, would I know if I had been contaminated by rationality? Would I know if I had been tam- contaminated by any given ex-lover? Um, I think this really gets to the heart of the relational aspect. I mean, Phineas Gage is a very extreme example um, and um, really pushes on some of the materialist buttons, you know. Um, So I'm not sure what to say about that, but I think the idea of, you know, do you know where your pure subjectivity ends or where you've been influenced unduly is it's impossible. And I think part of the challenge of this intersubjective interspecies consciousness that is already here is emerging has always been here is, um, to be able to find a position to, to model and understand yourself within a relational network, to be able to sort of think of yourself in that way so that you're not wondering if you were, uh, you know, contaminated by a mushroom or, or what, like you, um, you know, uh, we are shedding this kind of enclosed subjectivity, just like we're shedding enclosed notions of, of space because of climate change. Uh, so, What I'm looking for is a, you know, is is a, a day-to-day consciousness that can hold on to the the moments when I've understood myself more relationally, or the moments when I've understood myself like absent the stream of consciousness, um, that can sort of be aware of the other forms that my 
consciousness and awareness can take in relation and beyond myself, but also, you know, get my taxes done and stuff like that, so to speak. So I don't know if that really helps answer your question. But. Hey. Oh, are you okay? I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> it was very cool. You just wanted oh. to show us that trick. <laughs> exactly. I've been practicing that one. Like Blake Lemoyne practiced his <laughs> trick. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. This was so, so interesting. And I'm curious at one point you were talking about um, thinking about language as a virus or as an alien sentience. And it reminded me of some um, kind of like poetic theories coming out of pre-language poetry. So things like Jack Spicer, who thought that he was controlled by Martians, for example. Um, and I'm just curious if you've thought about framing your work in that context or like, you know, in that poetic lineage. Um, yeah. And what your thoughts might be there. I've never considered framing my work as being controlled by Martians. But now that you mention it, um, <laughs> um well, it's interesting because the pre-language um, notion. I'm not. I'm not familiar with uh, that work, so I don't know how pre the pre is. Um, but I've um, previously talked on podcasts about the, the notion of subword units that are used in machine learning training, and the idea that um, there's some. So subword subword units are you know rather than predicting like specific words, models will predict components of words that and they they learn on components of words like prefixes and suffixes and word roots and things that come from agglutinative languages where things get added together. Um, so that idea that there are these units that have relationships that are below the level of the word implies a sort of subconscious to language. And the example I like to use is the word scale because I was like really wondering why scales are why like fish have scales but also scales weigh things but also scale is like the relationship of size and mass and things and it comes from the scale that was made of shells um, that would weigh things and so this there's a lot of embodiment in these like word roots um so the idea of pre-language is very interesting because it's home and this is your field <laughs> Wait, well, we might need some more information about that part. I'll just wrap that thought and say that, um, that uh, oh, I see. You're saying historically pre-language poetry. Before, uh, not poetry that's written before language existed. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Well, it's, uh, hmm. I mean, to be honest, I'm kind of like... Um, an undereducated writer, <laughs> which might be obvious now, but um, uh, so in terms like I maybe am an outsider writer or something in some sense um, that like I don't uh, think necessarily in terms of like poetic schools um, and the like approaches to language are kind of utilitarian in in the context of kind of dealing with the complexity of language models and whatnot. Um, uh, but I guess the, what it, that evoked for me was pre-language and the kind of idea of like writing before language or writing through the unconscious or the like the the, the element of language that isn't what we would call language, the sort of like mycelial network of language um, versus the fruiting body of language. Um, but I would love for someone to go off on the um, pre-language poetry idea. Pally. <laughs> Pally. <laughs> microphone <laughs> thank you sorry i think this actually works in that like you know like the movement called like language poetry a big part of their focus was on trying to sort of like 
um, work on this sort of like um, emergence of like the syntactic and the semantic from the sort of like and like the indexical and the phonetic, you know, from the sort of like networks of social and material and sensuous relations in which, you know, yeah, actual, you know, sounds and graphemes are embodied and how those sort of like, you know, give rise to the level of syntax, semantics, pragmatics, communication, like discourse, proposition, and so on. Um, and, yeah, and really trying to sort of like, yeah, examine how sort of like we can maybe do operations or manipulations on the, I don't know if like pre-language, but sort of like, you know, pre-semantic, pre-syntactic level, and whether it can generate or correspond to new forms of thinking or like new ways of relating to thought. So mm-hmm. I think your like answer actually yeah, kind of like works anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of an improv exercise that I read about um, where you point at things and you say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So you'd be like car, book, sky, and you just do this for like 15 minutes. And then after I've done it and after you, it feels very weird. It's um, just like a reprogramming. Yeah, breaking down the, the linkage between things and letting other kind of information in. Try that. Does anyone else want to say anything? You could try it right now if you want. Please. Uh, you referred before to, I think, to the the stone ape theory, which is like the language is uh, an hypothesis of of uh, the first humans taking a substance and then hallucinating. So uh, language as a virus. And I'm thinking, like, why don't we hear more about xenolinguistics in AI theory? So trying to imagine systems of communication that are uh, addressed to non-identifiable beings. You know, for example, when you just now described the disentanglement between the objects uh, you see and the objects you name, you get, uh, you get a shadow of this idea. How can you use language to imagine how anotherly subjectivity might be? And I think this is something we don't read so much in AI. It's like in, or, uh, in, a, in general philosophy about it. Not only contamination, how we are com- contaminated, but how we also we can contaminate uh, the other. I'd have to say that uh, stoned ape is a very rude way of referring to Joe Rogan. Uh, one of the things I, I heard in this podcast series that will be coming out was my uh, director at Google, Blaise Gregory Arcas, uh, talking about the possibility for AI systems to translate between. Um, so I think the way he described it was that uh, the inclusion of Turkish in a training set, even though it wasn't uh, translated one to one, actually resulted in translatable Turkish. So the idea that there could be a, a set of language that is not indexed or labeled alongside other kinds of language would enable that to become translatable. How we would know if that's true or not is kind of hard to tell. Obviously people speak Turkish so they can test. Um, But this interesting, I think this is related to what you're saying, the idea of um, these, I mean, I do sometimes I think suffer from just experiencing language everywhere because of this, these lines of thinking. And so, um, I don't know if it's suffering, but it's maybe a hyper apophenia with regards to linguistic processes. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think this is kind of related to this idea that, that you're talking about. It also feels relevant to, you know, there's other schools, of course, with the large language models, like this idea of of general purpose, uh, 
mm-hmm. models. I know like DeepMind has been focusing a lot on these where it's like, you know, exactly you can present you can present the systems with with problems that they've never encountered before and there's something kind of generalizable to you know being trained on like a corpus of literature and then being able mm-hmm. to flip that over and um there being some kind of a latent you know a latent logic there that's mm-hmm. like kind of like a key to the universe that once you kind of it's quite kabbalistic you, yeah. yeah exactly very very kabbalistic yeah, yeah I, I wonder i do wonder about this because this is one of the most mind-bending things that you hear about sometimes and i wonder if um we're if <laughs> Well, first of all, I think some of the slippage between, you know, like sentience and language and, you know, it comes from over identification with language. So I think it's really important to always kind of create space for the non-linguistic experience that we can have uh, and the non-linguistic aspects of our or the non-literary aspects of being, you know, like if language is in all these other places as well. But um so I think there's some, there's a little bit of danger there, and if we want to be paranoid, we could even like wonder why the the, the virus from outer space is like trying to, <laughs> you know, encode itself into a, a non-language things. Um, but yeah, this gets into a little bit some of the stuff that's in Pharmaco AI about the idea of language, uh, you know, biosemiotics, language as a process of semiosis, like in along any material substrate. I have a question. Um, thank you for that amazing talk and conversation. And I'm I'm really um, interested in learning more about um, maybe more specific examples around interspecies communication. Um, for me, communication, and you know, maybe that's a very um, specific viewpoint. But I think it has it, it's rooted in this, the idea of the self and the others. And and for me, when I think of, think about that um, taking place in non-human species, I feel I feel completely at lost. <laughs> you know, it's like how I mean, how would you possibly know whether non-human species have a sense of self and the others, and whether that that communication is both ways, you know, two ways or meaningful at all? And I think there's also a lot of kind of trappings with. Um, even the understanding of non-human species, which is for me is so much constructed by human language. Like when I, you know, what's the difference between a lake and a pound to the lake and the pound? And when we talk about the lake and the pound, what are we talking about exactly? Like are we talking about the boundary or of the lake? Or are we talking about everything that's included in the lake or around the lake? It's um, there. It seems like for me, it, it for me it runs into the wall of boundary like what how is boundary defined and is this boundary meaningful for um non-human entities yeah i mean this is a huge question i think it's i have been approaching it through my relationship with my dog um there's certain ways that the like embodied communication like i i started um just talking to my dog as though he understands everything that I'm saying and it seems to work. Um, but a lot of it comes from, uh, like affect and touch and body language. And so for me, this has been a, just a really grounding and embodied way to enter into interspecies communication. Um, so I think, you know, of course we're both mammals. We both have a lot of similar, uh, like processes going on. Um, and of course, uh, it, 
as you reach different kind of bodies and different umwelts, then the question of what can be communicated does change possibly. Um, but then there's there to bring into the shamanistic uh, element, you know, of the, the, this cosmological diplomat that accesses the space preceding extension in which uh, all animals can become each other that affords the recognition that in this cosmology and uh, the animals see themselves as human so to speak so um the part of the recognition that happens in that is that the you know the shaman can see the jaguar and sees that the jaguar sees themselves as human um not as a bipedal hairless you know Ape, but as uh, as a human in a jaguar body, so um, I think part of the exercise in the book is to frame um, to to expand the range of what's thinkable by importing different assumptions that are as much true in their cultural context and in the practices that surround them as like our assumptions about what non humans might be experiencing. Um, when it comes to communication, though, and the specific idea of like AI as a means of communication, we have to be aware that um, right now we're talking really about one kind of sensing into interpretation without the the feedback loop. But the feedback loop might mean policy that changes the way land is used so that species can thrive there. Um, that to me is a kind of communication because it's moving um, into the, the real uh, consequences for the non-humans um, based on the scent, what we can learn about them. It's, um, it's, I mean, the a dumb example is the spinach that sends email, you know, and I don't know if people saw this headline, but the spinach can send email and then I guess it tells them to put more water in the soil or something like that. But that is a kind of communication um, too. It's just through different um, bodies and different sensory mechanisms that signals create meaning, right? So um, whether or not that's, so for a spinach, the water creates a meaning in the sense that it's able to grow. Is that something that has like an internal representation to the spinach? Like that's, a, that's debatable, but it's also kind of like doesn't matter so much because you want the spinach to grow so you can make a salad. And it's the same with, you know, to some extent with these models. Like do we care if they really are sentient? It might not actually matter in the end. And, and just like we grew up with one set of assumptions. We're experiencing these technologies and they're changing us. The next generation that comes up might not care what's sentient and what's not. Everything might be kind of sentient and kind of not to them. Brandon? Do I have it? Yeah. Yeah, actually, kind of piggybacking off that a little bit, I was just kind of curious. We're talking about like language and sentience and stuff. Our kind of assumption is that... that we are kind of the instructors, that we're kind of the top of the chain of being here. But I'm kind of curious if, you know, when you've been playing with some of these systems that uh, whether you ever get a glimpse that maybe that we're kind of in the infantile stage here and there's another language above us that we're just kind of glimpsing at, like higher levels of complexity, so that it's, you know, on the other side of, you know, who, who's learning, we, like we become the, the kind of the students or the, the language acquirers. I, I feel on a very practical level that that's what the case was for me. Um, like I feel like I learned how to write by using AI tools. Um, but I also, on a more kind of esoteric note, feel that, um, well, it's, it's presented in Pharmaco AI in certain ways, like the figure of the muse occurs. And that is a kind of teacher of 
language and expression that you know is formulated in that way because of the, it has these certain properties and does occur across time in certain ways to different people. Um, and one of the, you know some of the stuff that's discussed in the, I mean, this is really just within a spiritual dimension, you know. But some of the stuff that's in this in Air Age Blueprint touches on on these ideas as well of what is the ontological status of the entities that are encountered in the um, in the psychedelic space or perhaps through divination um you know does that does the fact that a system is statistical um, mean that it can't also put you in contact with uh, a, an objectively existing thing um, and so this is, gets into these again like pushing on our cosmological assumptions um but i i certainly think of this language acquisition as happening never like it's never I mean, the nature of language is to be relational. So it, we can never really see it that that way. And I think that's a good point, this idea of kind of top-down. When language is an emergent process, then AI acquiring language is us acquiring the language of AI, which is language acquiring all of that. Hi. Um, I also have a question about the interspecies um, um, communication you were just mentioning earlier um, that you are in this conference and that you're working on a specialized um, representation of non-human voices and I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how that actually is going to look like I'm, I'm not specifically working on that but what I was referring to are um, machine learning projects that are studying for example whale song or dolphin song and um, mapping those in a high dimensional representational space. So finding patterns across these various songs and you can sort of view two or 3D representations of these higher dimensional patterns as clusters of song, um, clusters of specific instances of song. So um, this is what I mean by, rep by uh, spatialization. It's, it's really internal to a, a model that represents the data. But it would be really cool to hear that spatialized. I know there's some great places to do that here in Berlin well I think we're done thank you so much for every, everyone for coming thank you everyone thank you for being here thank you to all thousands and thousands of you yeah enjoy your evening um, see you outside <laughs> <laughs>